Welcome to Good News for the Grand Valley, a podcast of Orwell Bible Church in Orwell, Ohio. This episode is a message from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, preached by Pastor Dan Greenfield during Orwell Bible Church's morning service on November 6, 2022. If you'd like, there's a link you can click on in this episode's description that will take you to a basic outline. You can learn more about Orwell Bible Church at our website, www.orwellbible.org. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, Solomon here teaches that you must submissively recognize God's sovereignty and gratefully rejoice in his gifts. Let's look this morning at Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 15, this message that I have entitled, Eternity and Time. The concept of time is something that's, on the one hand, relatively simple, but on the other hand, it is philosophically pretty deep. There's a church teacher who lived from 354 to 430 A.D. His name is Augustine, or if you prefer, Augustine. Some of you have a particular on that, and that to me it doesn't really matter. Augustine or Augustine said essentially this about time. He said, I know what time means until you ask me to explain it. Think about that one. I know what time means until you ask me to explain it. People, from their perspective, they view time as something that has always been. It's unchanging, but yet it's changing. It's always there, but yet it's fleeting. And so they view God, then, as part of time. And this is, a, this is a, uh, an issue that has been a challenge for the church for pretty much its entire existence. Is God subject to time? Is he timeless? Is he changeable? Does God know everything? Is God all-powerful? All you can see how this bleeds over then into other doctrines about God. But most people, unbelievers, view God as part of time. And so once their definition and understanding of God is settled, that he's just as much a part of life as we are, and he has to react and to respond to the decisions I make, people then see themselves as existing for themselves. It's all about them. What they do on their time on earth, their efforts, their career, and what they commit themselves to. People want to know that what they are doing is going to make a difference in human history. That what they do has, because of what they're doing, that it has then meaning in and of itself. That it makes life better for themselves and others, and their life is not wasted. Because they're looking at it from, life is about me. The problem with this is it's all a lie. It's a false front. It's a facade. It's make-believe. What that is doing is essentially it's like fish in a fishbowl. Trying to say, this is why we're here, and this is what everything is about. A fish in a fishbowl, they don't know what's going on outside them. Remember our friendly little fish? 
and his domicile, the fishbowl, we'll come back to him in a little bit. We need to ask, what does God the creator say? What does God, the one who sustains life, what does he say? What does God, the director of life, say? So instead of talking and debating about what we think time is and who God is and the relationship of God with time, we have to listen to what God says. We must believe what God says. Hear this carefully. Faith comes in order so that you will understand. You must believe what God says to then correctly understand everything else. If you're following along in your handout there, we're going to, I'm going to do two things with this message. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to walk through the passage, and then we are, I'm going to help you see its main points and how to apply that to your life, God willing. Let's look, first of all, number one, at the cycles of life. That's your blank there. Number one, the cycles of life. To everything, verse 1, there is a season, a time for every purpose, and the idea of that is every possible activity under heaven. Like what kind of things, Solomon? Birth, death, planting, harvesting or plowing, verse 3, killing and healing, breaking down, building up, verse 4, weeping or laughing, mourning or dancing, Verse 5, you might be thinking these are all you know, moral opposites, good and bad, but you get to verse 5 and you see that's not the case. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. Time to hug and there's times where you shouldn't hug. Verse 6, a time to gain and a time to lose. Time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear, a time to sow. Time to be quiet and, and then speak. And then lastly, verse 8, time to love and a time to hate. There's a time of war and a time of peace. This poem illustrates the different cycles of life that happen over and over again in the same order. His point of this poem is this, regularity. A pattern. Continuity. And if you had on a negative view of it, you could say it's just a merry-go-round that keeps going around and around and around. Everything repeats itself. Everything happens in the same way. There might be a little wrinkle on it. People are born in different ways in the sense of I was born by, you may say I was born by C-section or you were born naturally. People die in different ways. Violently or as it were, peacefully in their sleep, but the end result is the same, isn't it? There's death. I am not going to go in depth in this poem because this poem has one point. Life has cycles. It has seasons. It has different activities. This is God's sovereignty. This is God's providence. Number two. Number two. The meaning of life, verse 9. The meaning of life, verse 9. What profit has the worker 
from that in which he labors. Hold your place here. Back up to chapter 1 and verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Solomon asked at the very beginning, setting the pattern for the book, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And then go back to chapter 3 and verse 9. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? He's repeating this. Repeating this. So he stated the cyclical nature of life. Life has, life has cycles, seasons, going over and over. Solomon asked this question that he asked earlier. Remember, it's not the kind of question he's trying to get an answer for. He wants you to think. And in this context, in chapter 3, talking about time and seasons and cycles, he wants you to think about this. Given the cycles of life, does what you do really have significance? Given the repetitive nature of life, does what you do have any point to it? Because it's just going to repeat itself. Remember the fish and the what? In the fishbowl? What do fish do in a fishbowl? They swim. They eat. They see you coming. You can train, train as it were, so that when you start walking to the fishbowl with fish food in hand, they start doing this because they know what's coming. You know what I'm talking about. Cats do the same thing, and so do dogs. The fish swims. The fish eats. The fish probably sleeps. I don't know. It comes daytime, it comes nighttime. That's all we see. What's the point? Fallen man trying to understand everything is kind of like that fish in the fishbowl. He swims, he eats, he sleeps, and then he goes belly up, doesn't he? And I'll just leave it there. <laughs> This is the struggle of sinners in a sin-cursed world. That's what Solomon wants you to think about. Given the cycles, the regularity, the seasons of life, what does what you do, what does it really mean? What does it really point to? What's the point of it? Number three, verses 10 and 11, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Several things I want us to see here. First, we see about God's plan in verses 10 and the first part of verse 11. That God's plan, it is comprehensive and it is beautiful. I'll teach more about this in the second part of the message. But God's plan is comprehensive and it is beautiful. Verse 10. I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. God has given people a task, live and work in this world. The frustration comes because of sin. Remember, God gave Adam and Eve a task before sin entered the world? Keep the garden 
and eat of any tree that you want except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And remember I've talked about that, that when Adam and Eve ate those, those different things, they didn't say, ooh, I don't like that. It was good. Their taste buds were perfect. They loved everything that was there, and they did their work. Sin comes in, destroys it all. God's plan is comprehensive, and it's beautiful, but because of sin, there's thorns and thistles and sweat and struggle and death. But the statement in verse 11 has been described as one of the most profound statements of God's sovereignty in Scripture. Look at that passage. Look at, look at what he says there. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything that God does in his plan is beautiful. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. The second thing to see about God's sovereignty is, well, us. We're made in God's image. And he says in the, verse, in the second part of verse 11, also he has put eternity in their hearts. This means you are made in God's image. This means you know there's more to life than this. You hear that fish? in the fishbowl, and you see, there is something else. There's a reason I'm here. There's a reason I exist. It's more than this fishbowl. He has put eternity in our hearts. We have been made in God's image to reflect who he is, to show his character, and to live like him. A third thing we see in the rest of verse 11 no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. This is the big picture. You are not God. Surprise. You are not God. And because you're not God, you are unable by yourself to see the big picture. You are unable by yourself to see the big picture. Since God is sovereign, and you are not, what should you do then? God is sovereign. You are not, what should you do then? Number four, let's look at God's gift to us. God's gift to us. Verses 12 and 13. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. God made you in His image. He made you to live in His creation. He made you in His image to live in His creation under His sovereign and providential hand. And His gift to you is that you would enjoy what He talks about in verse 13. The basic things of life that God graciously gives. How, you might ask, how are... Uh, Good meals, verse 13, and your work accomplishment, how is that a good gift? Do you remember what happened because Adam sinned? What, happened to the what happens as a result of that? We have thorns and thistles and sweat and struggle and death. The fact that we can still enjoy a good meal and see profit in our work, that is a good gift gift from God and you must submissively enjoy that and be satisfied with that. 
And we fish, and the fishbowl might say, wait, that's it? I, I want a little bit more here, God. I want to have some influence. I want to have a say. It should seem that what I am doing has an impact on time and eternity. It should seem that way. What's the big picture? What do I add to it to make it better? The last point we'll see in verse five, or number five, God's purpose for everything. God's purpose for everything. Verses 14 to 15. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. We see here in this verse, everything about God, who He is, and His plan, it is infinite. That'd be the one word I would write down for verse 14a. Infinite. Whatever God does, it shall be forever. Remember the definition we have learned about God years and years ago? God is the what spirit? The infinite spirit. Everything about God is infinite. Then he also adds in the rest of verse 14, nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken away from it. In addition to infinite, we should see in the, this part of the verse, verse 14b, that everything about God's plan is it is perfect and complete. Those would be the two words to write down here. It is perfect and complete. Nothing in this created world influences God's plan. Nothing in this created world changes God's plan. And guess who that includes? That includes me and that includes you. What we do does not fill out or add to God's plan. Because if that were the case, then something would be missing from God's plan. God would not be perfect and we would not be able to say on the basis of Scripture, God is the infinite and perfect spirits in whom all things have their source, support, and end. We would have to say God is limited and partial spirits. But that is not what God says about Himself, is it? God executes His plan in human history. That's verses 2 through 8. Remember those times, a time for this, a time for that? That is human history. God works out His plan in human history so that we will fear Him. Now we're coming to uh, the rest of verse 14. God does it that men should fear before Him. What is the fear of the Lord? Remember that? The fear of the Lord is a reverent faith in Jesus Christ, exclusively loving, serving, and worshiping Him. God does all this so that we will fear Him, so that you will fear Him. And we come to the second part. Uh, I'm sorry, now we come to verse 15. That which ha is, has already been. What is to be, has already been. And then we have this statement, God requires an account of what is past. The point of this verse is this. God's eternal plan for everything, it involves a season for everything. A time for every purpose under heaven. It involves a time for every purpose under heaven. Does that sound familiar? It was verse 1, wasn't it? To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. What we have in verse 15 is the bookend of verse 1. The bookend of verse 1. That second part of verse 15, 
It's translated here in the New King James, God requires an account of what is past. This is some challenging Hebrew here. And remember, I've been throwing up some Hebrew recently. I'm not going to do that now because it'd be fruitless. It'd be a frustration to us all uh, as it was a challenge for me this week to wade through all that. What is this talking about? This isn't talking about God judging people. Now, before you say, Pastor Greenfield's denying the future judgment. No, there are clear passages that definitely talk about that. In fact, Solomon's going to do that in Ecclesiastes. What he's talking about here is that there's nothing new under the sun. Does that sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. God looks after, this is what he's getting at here. God looks after what people frustratingly try to make sense of. I'm the fish and the fish boy. I can't understand. Why is that? What about, I, I can't mix it. God is looking after it. He puts his mind to it. He directs. He controls. He accomplishes. God doesn't change. And his plan for human history is going on exactly as he's ordained. You have to see your life, which is time. You must see your life, which is temporal and limited. You must see your life in light of the giver of life. And if we're temporal, if we're time, what does that make God? Look at the sermon title on today's past, on today's sermon notes. He is eternity. Isn't that one of God's attributes? God is what his attributes are. He is love. He is truth. He is all-powerful. He is infinite. And in relation to time, that means he is eternal. It is essential to who he is. He is eternal. We are time. We can only rightly understand and see ourselves from God's perspective. So what is Solomon getting at in these 15 verses here? the bottom of your sheet here, here's the big idea. Here's what he's getting at. You must submissively recognize. You must submissively recognize God's sovereignty. Submissively recognize God's sovereignty and gratefully rejoice in God's gifts. Submissively recognize God's sovereignty and gratefully Rejoice in God's gift. And if you didn't get that, you flip your page over the second part, and what do you see at the top there? Hey, there it is right there. How can you do that? How can you submissively respond and recognize God's sovereignty? How can you gratefully rejoice in God's gifts? How can you do that? Three truths. Commands, instructions, we must see from what Solomon says here. Number one, you must revere, revere the Lord. Revere the Lord. He gives several reasons in this passage why you must fear the Lord. Number one, the first reason why you must fear the Lord is the different yet consistent seasons of life are His doing. The different Yet consistent seasons of life are his doing. 
What did Solomon say at the beginning part, the first half? There's a time to be born and a time to what? Die. Dan Greenfield, 19, uh, December 27, 1969. Until what? We'll see. Unless Jesus comes. You go, to a few, you, you go to a cemetery, and we got some great cemeteries around here. That's kind of morbid, isn't it? You look at every tombstone, and what do you see on every, almost every tombstone? Date of birth, date of death. And you might say, well, why did you say almost everyone? Because sometimes they don't include the date of death. It doesn't mean they're alive. Frequently they move and they live somewhere else, but they didn't know where they died. But I guarantee you, they died because we didn't have Enoch living amongst us or Elijah. Okay. Number two, you must fear the Lord because, let me get back to number one, because of the different yet consistent seasons of life, they are his doing. He's the one who causes that. Number two, creation. Creation testifies of God's being and power. Creation testifies of God's being and power. Again, verses 2 to 8. Unchanging cycles of creation. Unchanging cycles of creation. I remember when I was born on December 27, 1969. And you might say, no, you don't. You're right, I don't. It was a Saturday. I looked it up. I do remember when I was like two or three playing in the sandbox. I have that vague recollection of that. And then fast forward 18 years. I remember when I got married. I remember when I had my first child. Fast forward. I remember when my first child got married. I remember my first child had her first child. Are you seeing a what is the C word here? Cycle. The same could be said for your parents and their parents and their parents. How does that happen? It doesn't happen because it just happens. It happens because of who God is. And that must cause us to fear him, to revere him. We have eternity in hearts. There's, we know there's more than life to this. Number three, we must fear Him. We must fear Him because God's sovereignty and providence are absolute. They're absolute. Verse fourteen. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. It can't be changed. It doesn't need adjusting. Rebellion is futile. And we remember as believers, Romans 8, 28. I know that God causes how many things to work together for good? All things. All things. That trust is comforting. The fear of the Lord is essential to wisdom. It's fundamental, basic, foundational to wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, Christian, you can't live like you should. You won't live like you should in God's creation. You must first fear the Lord in order to submissively recognize His sovereignty and gratefully rejoice in His gifts. Number two, you must rest in His providence. Rest in the Lord's sovereignty and providence. 
several aspects of God's sovereignty and providence we must learn from Scripture here. Number one, God's sovereignty and providence is beautiful. It is beautiful. And this goes against what people say about God's sovereignty and providence. They say it's ugly, it's cold, it's sinister, it's unloving, it's uncaring. He's just that great uh, guy in the sky who forces us to do things. Let me give you some illustrations from creation. That might help us see a little bit. Think about a symphony. And I know some of you are not classical music aficionados. But think about a symphony, even if you don't like classical music. You have dozens of instruments, different kinds of instruments, dozens of different people. If you've ever been in an orchestra and you listen to while they're tuning up, it does not sound, what's the B word here? Beautiful. It sounds like, whoa, that's bad. Everybody playing whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. And suddenly, the conductor comes up, taps his uh, podium, turn to this piece. And after they've practiced well, you hear this beautiful symphony that happens why? Because of the composer's skill. Another illustration. For me, one of the most beautiful sounds that I remember from my childhood is my grandpa's Farmall Super M. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. My grandpa had several tractors. He had an old John Deere, I can't remember what model. He also had a Farmall Super M. This was his big tractor. This is from like the 50s. But there's just something about listening to that. Something about it's finely tuned and how it's just running well. And then that thing on top of the exhaust pipe. What's that thing called that goes back and forth? Clap, 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 clap. Keeps the rain from going down in. It just, it just, that is a beautiful sound. I mean, it is just love listening to it. I tried twisting our budget this year to buy an old farm oil tractor. I thought, no, we have a building program going on. We have more important things to devote money to. What makes that smooth running farm oil Super M a thing of beauty to listen to? It's the skill of the farmer tuning it, keeping it running right, What's coming up in a few weeks? Another illustration. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving dinner. All the trimmings. Nothing sloppy. Nothing missing. Nothing badly prepared. What makes a Thanksgiving dinner beautiful? It's the result of the skill of the cook, of the chef. What makes God's sovereignty beautiful? It's God. And because of His skill, everything that God does is exactly as He planned. Even the wrath of man, Psalm 76.10, is made to praise Him. 
even as we will see this afternoon, Judas, the religious leaders, the Roman government and soldiers all conspire to bring about the death, crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God. Something from our perspective in the fishbowl looks like a tragedy. But yet, we read in Acts 2 and we read in Acts 4 that God sovereignly brought all those things together exactly as He planned. He let them have their own way to praise Him. And now, when we think about the cross, we don't think of tragedy. What do we do about the cross? We proclaim that. There were women that we read about in Luke 22 and 23 that wept because of what was about to happen to Jesus. What changed all that was what God did through the crucifixion. And so now the cross is not something reprehensible. It is something that is a blessing because through Christ's death, through his resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. Because God's sovereignty and providence are beautiful, you can rest in those things. A second aspect of God's sovereignty and providence is it is comprehensive. It is comprehensive. Everything is included in it. Everything is involved. There's nothing missing. Think about the birds of the air. Have you watched birds recently? God gives life to the birds, and what else does God do to birds? He feeds them. Think about the flowers. They grow. They bloom. They fade. And then it will repeat itself. They'll grow and bloom and fade, and they'll repeat itself. Think about the seasons. Winter, spring, summer, fall. Repeat. Every aspect of it is involved in God's plan. It is a coherent whole. It is perfect. It's interlocking. And in God's mind, he's the only, he's the, only in the mind of God can he see everything perfectly. And that should cause us to rest in him. He will take care of it. That's the point, remember, of verse 15. He will take care of it. We trust him. We rest in his perfect sovereignty and providence. Number three, his sovereignty and providence, we need to recognize the context that, they, that it provides. The context that it provides. It gives us the big picture for meaning and significance to your life. It makes sense of it. I was tempted to grab an illustration of this, but I didn't want anybody to be mad at me. But if I went out into our parking lot this morning with my, I didn't bring my knife, so I'd have to borrow one. And I took off just a tiny little piece of rubber from one of your vehicles. Would you miss that tiny little piece of rubber? You might say, it depends. It's just a little piece of rubber. In fact, it's usually sticking out. You know, it'd be nice to have it all flat. We call these things your valve stem and your tires. Now I know some of you have these new cars where it's all metal so that it can tell you what you know how much air pressure is in, and then they go bad and they want you to pay a hundred dollars for those things. You know what I'm talking about? A valve stem in and of itself, it doesn't look that important, 
it doesn't seem that significant, but when you see it in light of the whole, boy, if you don't have a valve stem, you're not going anywhere, do you? It has an essential aspect, an essential part in the, the, the big picture. God is the big picture. He is the context for everything. And because God's sovereignty and providence is the context of everything, you can rest in him. Number four, it is sure, S-A-S-U-R-E, it is sure. And what's meant by that is doesn't, God's plan doesn't depend on you. It's not contingent on you. If it was, why limit it to you? There are trillions and quadrillions of other aspects of God's creation that are acting and whirring and whirling. Why not those things? And God's then constantly having to hold everything together, what you think, what you do. Imagine if it, that were the case. God wouldn't be sovereign. He'd be reactive. He'd always be responding instead of being God, and that is frightening. But because God's sovereignty and providence is sure, you can rest in him. A fifth and last aspect of God's sovereignty and providence, it is practical. It is practical. How are these aspects of God's sovereignty and providence practical? If you missed what I said, I hope you didn't, because you've got to understand that in order for it to really be practical. But remembering God's perfect sovereignty, it is, it is essential. It will, number one, protect you against pride. It will protect you against pride. Because when things are going well, you need to be humble and give thanks to the Lord for what you're experiencing and not be proud. But on the other hand, God's sovereignty and providence protects you against despondency when things are not going well. Because you are trusting in a God who causes all things to work together for good. And you might say, how does this, that experience, that thing that you went through with your loved one in your own life or your, your money or your job, how does that? Remember, when we're trying to figure things out, we're the fish in the fishbowl, we must trust what God has told us, that what he does is always good. He is sovereign. He does accomplish his purposes. And we must trust him in this sin-cursed world. You have to rest in the Lord's perfect sovereignty and providence in order to submissively recognize his sovereignty and gratefully rejoice in his gifts. The third and last, number three, rejoice and be satisfied in God's good gifts. Rejoice and be satisfied in God's good gifts. You have a good meal, verse 13. Is it sinful to be thankful for it? Is it sinful to enjoy it? Absolutely not. It is a gift of God. You give thanks to the Lord for it. What about your work? That work that you just struggled with this past week. Hard things happen. Difficult things happen. Was good accomplished? Were some positive effects the result of it? I know at least one thing happened. You earned some money. And what can you do with that money? You can buy food. And what can you do with that money that you buy for food? You can have a good meal. 
And give thanks to the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that despite the curse, we can thank the Lord for these basic things and enjoy them. What was the title I put on today's message? Eternity and Time. I wonder if there are any who say, you got that backwards. It's supposed to be time and eternity. Well, when viewed that way, time and eternity, we are looking and considering eternity from the standpoint of what? Time. Eternity is an attribute of God. And in the beginning, God did what? Let me back up. In the beginning, what did God create? He created everything, and that includes time. And you might say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not right. Time has always been fishbowl. No, there is God, and he has created all things. We sang about that in our hymns this morning. The, ver the third verse of the third hymn that we sang, Eternity with all its years stands present in thy view. To thee there's nothing old appear. To thee there's nothing new. God, we're trying to describe, we created creation, we're trying to describe God. We're trying to make him understandable to us. And that's why our illustrations will almost always fail. God created time, but yet he acts in time, doesn't he? When you view life and time from God's perspective instead of your perspective, you'll have a right view of your life and time. You are not a cog in the wheel of time that you just do because God has foreordained you to do this. And you fall down the steps and you say, I'm glad that's over with. You are not a cog in the wheel of time, but neither are you an independent operator in God's shop that he is the owner has to, oh no, you did that, how am I going to respond? You're not a cog, but you're not an independent operator that God has to respond to. So what is the big picture? The big picture is this. God is eternal. He made you in his image. And if you're trusting Christ, he saved you by his blood so that you will consciously love and serve him. But I want to know the big picture. You can't. You know why you can't? Because you are not God. However, God made you in his image so that you can read what he says about it, love what he said about himself, gratefully receive the things that he's given and that glorifies him, and obediently serve him in and through your life. And while you're going through a sin-cursed world with all its thorns, thistles, struggles, and death, you're trusting him, and you know that he will work all things for good because you're trusting him. Christian, know the Lord, trust him, follow him, rejoice in him. If you don't know the Lord, 
you are that rebel fish and you're trying to make sense of things by yourself and you will, you're guaranteed to get frustrated and never come to a right conclusion. Trust the Lord. Believe Him and follow Him. Let's pray.